You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. So the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way so that through us it will produce thanksgiving to God for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 to 15. And today, like last week, we're going to talk about money. Who in here is excited to talk about money? Some improvement. Okay, good. All right. Last week, we looked closely at the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 6, and we saw that money and our hearts are, are closely connected and that the biggest hurdle to our giving is the anxiety that our giving rather than keeping or spending will make us miserable. And we saw that Jesus confronts that anxiety by reminding us that God is our heavenly father and he cares for us. And if we understand that, like if we really get that, it will create a paradigm shift in our giving because it will cause us to look up, to think about giving from God's perspective. And so today I want to talk more about that, but first I wanna spend some time, again, putting all of this into context. What is this Rooted Initiative about? Again, why now? What does it look like a year from now and so forth? I wanna touch on these things um, looking at really five questions, okay? And this is gonna take a minute. I just wanna warn you, it's gonna take some time, but I think it's important. Here are those five questions. I'm gonna run through them quickly and then we'll slow down on each one. Number one, what are we doing? Number two, why are we doing it? Number three, why are we doing it now? Number four, how much does it cost? And number five, what do we do next? All right, first one, taking it from the top. What are we doing? Okay. We, right now, as a church, are taking a step, as a church, taking a step where we go from having been a church planted to becoming a church 
Rooted, yes, right on. And this rootedness that you've heard about involves three things, and you've heard these before too. Three things that this rooted initiative means. It means we freshly embrace the vision of our church. It means that we invest in our footprint here in the Twin Cities. And it means that we commit to give. And these three parts have a three-part goal. Number one, we, we want to enjoy God. We want to have more of God and we want others to have more of God through us. Number two is, is we want all of our covenant members to, to be all in. And then number three, we want to raise $5 million over the next two years. That's what we're doing. Okay, why are we doing it? It's because as a church, we want to have an active living presence in the Twin Cities and a lasting impact. We want to be a church that truly makes disciples for years and generations to come. We want to be a church that multiplies and matures worshipers, servants, and missionaries of Jesus who live faithfully in the home, the church, and the world. And then we want to multiply more churches who are committed to the same. We want to saturate these twin cities with healthy local churches, truth-telling outposts. And then all together, we want Jesus to be impossible to ignore in the Twin Cities long after we're gone. The secret here to all of this is the glory of Jesus. It really is. Get me in a corner, pull me away from everybody. That's the secret. That's what I'm going to say. That's the secret. It's the glory of Jesus. That's the point. That's why we're doing this. Go back to the first sermon. This is all because Jesus is worthy. We want to be a church that is a faithful witness to him. All right, third question. Okay, so why are we doing this now? I want to answer this question first in general, okay? I want to step back for a minute, and I want to say something about really all churches everywhere, okay? After, after what we've all been through in 2020, the next two years are likely the most crucial years we will experience in a generation. I think that's true for most every church that has been touched by this pandemic. This is a, a fork in the road kind of season, I think for most churches, but especially for churches in the Twin Cities like us. After a year of just constantly reacting, 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 we are finally now at a place where we can look ahead, right? We can imagine a post-pandemic world. The mask will not always be there. 
these things will not always be. We can, we can see it. We can look ahead and we can see. We, we finally can look ahead. And as we look ahead, we don't want to sit back on our heels, okay? Now is the time for us to say, this is where God has called us and this is where we're going. And the pastors are saying this right now because that's what leadership does, right? We all knew going back to the fall of 2019 when we were in the process of purchasing this building, we all knew and we said then that there were renovations to do. Right? And of course, now in light of 2020, we could just put all of that off for another five years and we could just muddle through until then, but the pastors believe that the timing and the coalescing of all these things is actually providential. Because we know the kind of church we wanna be. That's not a question here. We know our mission and vision. We know where we wanna go as a church. The question is who is going? Who, who is in? Who wants to be part who is called by God to be part of this next chapter of Cities Church? There's really no better time to ask that question. So we are. That's an important part of this initiative. Number four, what is that gonna cost? Now this is a question of commitment and the first commitment is to be here, to be in, to be part of the next chapter. And if we are, if you are here, then it means that we commit to give to what God is doing here. And the goal for that is $5 million over the next two years. Okay, so why that number? Where did that come from? Okay, that number, $5 million, is the total number that includes both our ministry budget over two years and the funds that would allow us to make game changer renovations to this building. For the ministry budget, this year our budget is $1 million and we're planning the same thing for the following year. That's two million, which means that, that it leaves us $3 million for the renovations. And the way we get to a number like three million for the renovations is by looking at several pieces such as what are the renovations that this building needs? What are the renovations that would most support our ministry? And then what is a plausible, sensible, reasonable range for our church? Now, all of those things have to inform one another and the pastors going back a year now have chartered, we've chartered a renovation task force and a, tapita, uh, a capital task force who have been working on, the, on these things for months. And it's task force of people much smarter than me. And for months now, they've been working through these things through several meetings, through talking with many of you, through working with an architect. We, we have now a good idea of the kind of renovations that are most needed and the ones that would have the most functional impact. And based upon that research, 
of those task force, here is a list of those things. One, we want to improve the space for our ministry to children and families which means better classrooms, updated check-in logistics, better security. We want to improve the fellowship hall and other classroom spaces to make them better venues for discipleship gatherings and counseling meetings. We want to improve the bathrooms to make them have more than one stall and to make them easier to get to because that's just a loving thing to do. That's all I have with that, okay? It's just loving, right? Their bathrooms. We want to improve the foyer space over here that connects these two buildings. And, and we maybe, perhaps, um, rather than it creating traffic jams, what if we can make it wide enough to, to, to be a place where you can actually have conversations with people? Imagine encouragement happening as people linger over here to my left. We want to improve the entrances to this building to make them more welcoming to people who pass by. We need better handicap accessibility. It should be easy to get into this building if you're in a wheelchair or if you're pushing a stroller. We want to make needed exterior repairs that will, at the most basic level, keep this building together, okay? I want it to stay upright. And also, we, we want to showcase the beauty of this building because we want this space, our footprint, to signify to these twin cities that we are a church that is alive by the Spirit of God and we're here to stay. And we want to improve and increase the seating capacity in this room where we worship. Because worship is the heartbeat of our church. There's nothing more important. Now, these are the kind of things, the kind of renovations that we want to do. And they're renovations that will certainly maximize our ministry to make disciples. They will. They will maximize our ministry. Okay, when it, when it comes to money, money can only do physical things. Think on this with me. Money can only do physical things. That's it. No matter where it goes, the only thing money can do is buy physical things. Say you give your money to global missions, which we do, right? We do. Well, that money that you give to global missions, it's not buying the regeneration of souls. It's buying food for a missionary. And that missionary, through the means of that food and other means, is going to speak the gospel to someone, and the Holy Spirit is gonna use that to regenerate souls. See, see how it works? All money can do is buy physical things like food and like buildings and childcare space and meeting rooms and chairs. The chairs we're sitting on are physical, physical money bottle. 
It's nice to have chairs. It's good to have chairs. We need chairs. All money can do is buy physical things that all are only a means toward, in this context, a means toward making a physical environment where spiritual work happens. That's why churches have buildings. We as a church, we cannot buy the miracle. We can't. We cannot buy the miracle, but we can buy the room where the word is preached and praises are sung and miracles happen. See how that works? Now, in the vision guidebook, if you grab a copy of those, if you, wanna, if you have it, you can grab one on the way out. On page 24, we have some conceptual drawings of physical renovations. And those, those drawings are there first just because we, we want you to look at those and just kind of imagine, just kind of dream a little bit of the kind of renovations we could do. That's the first level. But second level, I want to encourage you to look through that vision guidebook, look at those, those drawings and take a step deeper. Look at those drawings and imagine the spiritual work that could happen in spaces like that. Use, our, use, our, use your imagination, imagine the kind of miracles that God might be pleased to do in spaces like that. According to the information that we've gathered by the Renovation Task Force, the research that we've done, we believe we can do a significant number of those renovations for $3 million. Now there's a range here, right, of maximum ideal and of minimum acceptance. Get that? There's a range there. And we can't know more details there until we know more precisely the kind of funds we're working with. And this, this is how every project like this makes sense, right? Maximum ideal, minimum acceptance. We, we don't know more details yet until we know what we're working with. So God willing, by his grace, by his grace, God willing, we meet our goal of $5 million and then we can begin the wonderful congregational process of together deciding and approving the renovation details. See? So one way to say it is like this. As a church, we want to give to the vision and future of our church not to the carpet color or to other details like that, okay? We raise funds, we give in light of the vision and then we get into the renovation details. It's not the other way around, okay? So what do we do next? Number five, okay. For this rooted initiative, we are asking three things of our members, everyone who is part of our church, freshly embrace the vision, invest in our footprint, and then commit to give. And the resource that we have for that commitment to give is this commitment card right here. You've seen these, we've got a video about it online. What we're doing, we're asking all of our members, everyone who is part of our church, we're asking that you take this card and that you seek the Father on what is the total number for you to give to Cities Church over the next two years. We, we want you, as Kenny said, to really pray and seek the Father 
on this. And we want you to land on a number and we want you to write that number in this card. And that's going to be your pledge or that's going to be your commitment. And then once you do that, and this is the week to do it, okay, this week. Really seek the Lord if you haven't yet. Seek the Lord about that. Land on a number. Tell us that number in this card. And then next Sunday, Palm Sunday, March the 28th, at the close of our service, I'm going to be up here preaching and I'm going to end, I'm going to come to a point in the sermon, toward the end of the sermon, where I'm going to ask our church, I'm going to call our church to be rooted, okay? I'm going to make that call. And when I make that call to be rooted, we're going to give a moment there where we're going to ask our members who are rooted to, to come forward and to make their commitment by placing this commitment card in a basket. It's going to be a basket here, here, and here. And we're going to ask you to come forward and make that commitment. And that's following the biblical pattern that we see in the Bible of bringing offerings. We're going to actually come forward to give our gift to God by putting these cards right here in a basket. Okay? We've never done that before. It's going to feel a little bit strange. But it's good to know the people of God have been doing that for literally thousands and thousands of years, okay? So um, it's gonna be a sweet, precious moment, I think, for our church. Now I realize, happily I realize, that we are also, as we're in the middle of this initiative, we are also uh, in the process of sending out our fourth church plant. God willing, Mike Schumann and his team, they're gonna launch out a new church this fall. And so wait, what if you're part of that? What if you're a member at our church right now, but in six months, we are gonna commission you out to be part of a church plant? What do you do? Okay. So, this is what we ask. If you're a member now who will be part of a church plant in six months, we ask that you would still make a commitment to Rooted and that you would give to Rooted. And then once we officially start the new church plant, you just direct your giving to that church. Okay? If you are being sent out from City's Church to be part of a new church plant, you, you cannot really embrace the vision of our church more than that, right? So be part of the Rooted Initiative and then direct those funds to the church plant once it starts. Now look, and this is the conventional wisdom in this sort of thing is that if you are doing something like we're doing, trying to raise funds in an initiative like this, the conventional wisdom is you don't send out new churches in the middle of these things. But we are. And we are because that's the vision of our church. That this is ultimately about vision. And so, yeah, we're going to send out new church plans every year, God willing, because our vision matters most. Again, look, seriously, seriously. This is all about the glory of Jesus, y'all. It's all about the glory of Jesus. Okay, so I've spent some time on this. We good? I'm gonna preach in just a minute. Take a swig of water. I want us now, after sharing, this is important information, right? Page 52 in your vision guidebook, it has some FAQs. You can, if you have more questions or there's some things, uh, more clarity here, check out the FAQ, page 52. Or just come up and ask me or ask another pastor after the service. We are eager to talk more about it. Now, in this moment, we're going to segue. We're going to go back to 2 Corinthians 9. That's where we started. I want us to look in this passage and I want us to consider 
three truths, three truths about giving from God's perspective. Again, we're stepping back and we're talking about money. We're talking about giving. Remember from last week, we, we saw in, in Matthew 6, God is our Father and He cares for us. Therefore, we don't have to be anxious. We don't need to be anxious. And that means because we're not anxious, because our Father cares for us, we can look up in our giving. We can actually think about and be concerned about what God thinks about when it comes to giving. Which is amazing. That's what I want us to do here for a few minutes. Three truths about God-centered generosity. Here is truth number one. God accepts acceptable offerings. Number one, God accepts acceptable offerings. I know that sounds super simple. But my hope here is that we can back up and that we can understand afresh just how amazing this is. The fact that we, as creatures, creatures to say the least, sinful creatures, but we as creatures, we can give something to God, the creator. The fact that we can do that and that he received that is far from simple. That's mind-boggling. That should be mind-boggling to us. As the scriptures testify, we believe in one living, sovereign, and all-glorious God, eternally existing in three infinitely excellent persons. God the Father, the fountain of all being. God the Son, eternally begotten, not made, without beginning, being of one essence with the Father, and God the Holy Spirit, proceeding in the full divine essence as a person, eternally from the Father and the Son. We worship God in Trinity, and the Trinity in unity, neither blending their persons nor dividing their essence. Yahweh, God's declared name, is the triune God, fully and completely God. We believe that. And to be fully and completely God is different from being human. There is a vast, unimaginable difference between being God and being us. Being the creator and the created are not the same. In God's holiness and in his unlike usness, a fundamental difference from us is that he never needs anything. Never. Acts 17, verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is absolutely independent. And everything else is dependent upon him. Like Job says, in God's hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Like God himself says in Job chapter 41, which Paul quotes in Romans, God says, who has given to me that I should repay him? Get the question? Who has given to me that I should repay him. Whatever is under the whole heavens is mine. And Paul adds, in praise, from him and through him and to him are all things. And if we attempt to relate to God as if that's not true, it is repulsive. 
God says in Psalm 50, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills. And all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, which he is not, and never will be, but just for example, if he was, God says, I would not tell you. For the world and all its fullness is mine. God does not need anything. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need us. And yet, we open the Bible, and right away in Genesis 4, in one of the earliest interactions between God and man, we read about these two brothers who were going to give something to God. These two brothers, Cain and Abel, they bring an offering to the Lord. Why do they do this? We, we don't actually, we don't know really. There are no laws to do this. According to what's revealed in the scriptures at this point, God has not commanded them to do this. But here they are, and they come to this God who literally, just three chapters before, by his words, he created everything that exists. They come to this God who just made everything that is, and now they're going to give him something? This does not make any sense. See, do you see? How does this make sense? These two brothers give something to God. And then in Genesis 4, verse 4, we read, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. This is what happens. We read this verse. And it raises a question in our minds. And this is a question that exposes to us how man-centered we are. Because we read this verse and we think, well, why did God not regard Cain's offering? What? How did God regard Abel's offering? That's the question. How in the world is it that this God who just made everything, who doesn't need anything, how is it that he receives a gift from Abel. How is it that there is such a thing as an acceptable offering to a God who is all-sufficient and unchanging? We, that we can give him a gift and that he react in favor. That's what the word regard means here. It means the word is regard or accept. Another way to say it is please. God is pleased. We take this for granted. Have we ever thought about this? How does this, how, how does this work? Why does God do this? How can it be? The only reason such a thing exists, an acceptable offering. The only reason such a thing as an acceptable offering exists is because God 
in his unchanging nature is gracious and merciful and he has a disposition of delight that is exercised in response to our faith in him. That's why Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 says, and without faith it is impossible to do what? Please God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And in Hebrews 11, in the hall of faith, do you remember who the first example of Old Testament faith is? By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. By faith, oh okay, by faith. So the first truth about God-centered generosity is that God, who is wholly greater and separate from us and who, and who needs nothing from us, he is so good in his very nature that he unchangeably exercises pleasure in response to our faith in him, which is what giving is. If you give to God in the faith of who he is, which means if you believe he exists and he rewards those who seek him, if you give to him in faith, his irrevocable, trustworthy response is pleasure, regard, acceptance. God is pleased, he's pleased, he, he's delighted. He is pleased by our plastic donuts. Thank you, Jeff Anderson, for that illustration about plastic donuts. And we know every illustration isn't perfect, but they can still help, and this one really helps me. Jeff, who wrote the book Plastic Donuts, we've given some of those away, he's at home one day, he's in his living room, and his two-year-old daughter was playing with her plastic kitchen set. We've gone through about three of those, I think, in our... <laughs> uh, she's playing with her plastic kitchen playset, and he's sitting in the living room, and she brings Jeff, her dad, she brings him a little plastic donut, right? And Jeff, her dad, because his posture toward her is delight, and because she was acting as a, as a two-year-old, because she was acting out of the genuineness of her heart as his two-year-old daughter, he accepted the plastic donut and he gobbled it up. Mom, 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 you know? And he, what he did is he exercised his delight. And his little girl saw it. She saw him do it. And you know what she did next? She went and got another one. She went and got another plastic donut. And she brought it back to him and she gave it to him again. Why? Why did she do that? It's because she enjoyed the joy of her father. She looked up. She looked up. Joy. Giving is about joy. First the joy of God and then our joy in God. God accepts our acceptable offerings and how in the world are we not amazed by that? We see it all throughout the Bible. We do. And it still happens today. This still happens today. In Philippians 4, verse 8, the Apostle Paul, he calls financial gifts to the church. Paul calls them a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. 
And the first thing we should think when we read Philippians 4, 8 is that we should think, what a good God. What a God. What a good God. A God who needs nothing and who gives us everything. A God who is pleased when we give to him in faith. I just, I just want us to be blown away by that. Number two. This is the second truth about God-centered generosity. It'd be a little quicker. God accepts gifts decided in our hearts. God accepts gifts decided in our hearts. So the criterion of acceptability we see has to do with faith in God. That's base level. But then in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul actually gives us more instructions about giving. For the context here, Paul has been collecting funds from several churches for the struggling church in Jerusalem. He talks about this in Romans 15, talks about it in 1 Corinthians 16. He has told the Corinthian church already, set aside money, and now he is writing to them, preparing to receive it. And it's really important for Paul that they understand giving, okay? It must be a willing gift, not an exaction. And a willing gift means, as Paul says in verse 7, each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. Okay, now other English translations say each one must give as he has made up his own mind. Okay, same thing. Make, to make up your mind, to decide in your heart, it's the same idea. It means that whatever you give, you are making that decision, which is both the decision to give and the amount to give. You decide how much you give, and that decision is based upon your ability, which is what Paul says in chapter 8, verse 12. An offering is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. And this is, we see this, this principle in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, if you didn't own a herd, God didn't expect you to give a bull. If you didn't have a herd, how about a goat? How about a sheep? If you didn't have any of them, how about a pigeon? Give according to what you have. This is biblical. Give according to what you have. Gracious, gracious. And when it comes to what you have, whatever that is, the amount matters, okay? And I say this because I want to hear, I want to dispel the notion that it doesn't really matter how much you give, but it's the heart that counts, okay? The, the idea that the heart matters, not the amount. That's just not true, okay? <laughs> really, that's not true because it's precisely the amount that engages the heart, right? When it comes to everything, every other thing in life, the amounts matter to us, they do. Your mortgage amount matters. Your rent, that couch that you're looking to buy, whether or not to get the small or the medium at Jamba Juice, it cost my family 60 bucks to go to Jamba Juice. We, we don't go to Jamba Juice much. We, look, we can, we can pair that with, we can eat, my whole family can eat, eat, can we, can eat at Chipotle for 40 bucks. We get extra rice. And then we split them up. The amounts matter is what I'm saying. We, I mean, they, they do. The amounts matter to us in everything. The question is whether the amount we give to God matters like the other things. And of course it should. 
That's the question. According to what you have, the amount that you give, you determine, and that amount matters. It matters. And you determine it in your heart. Okay, this is, this is, you decide this in your heart. These are the instructions of the Apostle Paul. Chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 9, verse 7. We each give according to what we have. And that giving is decided in our hearts, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And honestly, this should be really exciting for us that Paul teaches us this. It should be exciting that Paul says, do not give reluctantly or under compulsion, but cheerfully. That should be exciting, but I realize that it's easy for us to read this verse and to see it as a concession not to give. Because we think, we read this and we think, well, I don't really have anything to give. Or we say, you know, my heart feels some reluctance. I'm not super cheerful, so. Brothers and sisters, I just want to humbly exhort you here, okay? I say this as someone who knows this too well from his own heart, okay? A lot of times, we look for reasons not to give. This is true. You know how it goes, right? There's an opportunity for us to give and immediately, faced with an opportunity to give, immediately the self-talk becomes making arguments for why we shouldn't give. And it's remarkable how quickly we can build a list of reasons not to give, right? What if instead of looking for reasons not to give, we look for ways to give? And if our hearts feel clunky, if our hearts feel reluctant, what if instead of using that as an excuse not to give, we prayed, God, help my heart. Change my heart. Work in me. Change me. How can I hear, Father, how can I, based upon my ability, how can I be generous? Do we look for reasons not to be generous? Or do we want to be generous? And here's another part that blows my mind. If, if you want to be generous, God will make you generous. God is able to make all grace abound to you. He will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. He will increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. This is what Paul says. This is his teaching on generosity. God accepts gifts we decide in our hearts and that comes from our confession of the gospel of Christ. This is God-centered, gospel-driven generosity. And Paul says, most important verse, I think of all, chapter eight, verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter eight, verse nine, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that you in his poverty, we in his poverty, we might become rich. And this leads us to the third and final truth here about God-centered generosity. 
It's that God is the cheerfulest of all givers. God is the cheerfulest of all givers. You see, you see how it goes, right? All, all of our giving is only because of God's giving. We can't give anything to God that he hasn't given to us. It's easy for us to get stuck looking down. We get stuck on our hearts. We get stuck on the amount. We get stuck on the ability. But the main theme of this passage and the main theme of giving is not our ability, but God's. Look up, church. Look up. The God who made everything and who needs nothing. This God, our Heavenly Father, He loves cheerful givers because He Himself is the cheerfulest of all givers. And guess what? He gives according to His ability. What's His ability? He's able to make all grace abound to you. He's able. He's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound. We may abound in every good work. Our giving is only because of his giving, because of his surpassing grace upon us, which produces thanksgiving to God. Do you see how vertical this is? It produces thanksgiving to God. That's the point. We're looking up at him. And so it's fitting here that Paul ends this passage on giving with verse 15. That's how I want to end the sermon, verse 15. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 15. We talked about generosity last week. We've talked about it again this week. I want to conclude these two sermons this way. Thanks be to God. We just landed there. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. That's what brings us now to the table. Because at this table each week, we give thanks to God for the ultimate inexpressible gift of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus, God has not merely given us grace, but he's given us himself through the death of Jesus in our place. God has paid for our debt of sin. He has declared us rich in righteousness, and he has welcomed us into his fellowship. And if you're here this morning and you trust in Jesus, if you have put your faith in Jesus, we invite you now to receive this bread and this cup. Let us give him thanks. His body is the true bread. His blood is the true drink. Let us serve you.